Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Much has been said and written about how opening up a relationship can dramatically change it, but it can also change the individuals involved in really significant and profound ways. There is an awakening of the self that happens when people begin to practice non-monogamy. This awakening can be equal parts exciting and exhilarating, but also frightening and destabilizing. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to explore a helpful model for understanding where you and your partner or partners are during a relationship transition. I think this is a really helpful framework because sometimes people who have opened their relationship seem to be moving in very different directions because each of them has had a very different self-awakening. Understanding this framework can offer a very helpful guide when it comes to navigating the challenges that occur in the process of opening up or when transitioning between different forms of non-monogamy. I am joined today by Jessica Fern and David Cooley, the co-authors of the new book, Polywise, a deeper dive into navigating open relationships. Jessica is a psychotherapist, coach, and certified clinical trauma professional. She is also author of the book Polysecure, which we spoke about previously on the show. David is a professional restorative justice facilitator who created the Restorative Relationships Conversations model, a process that transforms interpersonal conflict into deeper connection, intimacy, and repair. This is going to be an incredible conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Opening up a relationship can be a little daunting if you've never done it before. So what do you need to know to get off to a successful start? Beducated is here to help. Their online courses can give you the knowledge and skills you need to cultivate happy and healthy intimate relationships, no matter what form they might take. And that includes teaching you what you need to know if you're looking to explore the world of consensual non-monogamy. For example, their course on opening up will teach you how to bring up the idea of non-monogamy in your relationship. It also explores common challenges and how to overcome them, and it introduces you to different relationship models. The content is amazing, and there's so much to learn. Try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 50% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. There's also a 14-day money-back guarantee. Check the show notes for the link, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy! Okay, Jessica and David, let's talk about how transitioning from monogamy to non-monogamy or transitioning from one form of non-monogamy to another form of non-monogamy can change you. So we hinted at this briefly in the last episode, but I wanted to do a deeper dive into this topic because we haven't really covered it extensively on this show. So much of what is said about relationship transitions focuses on how it changes the relationship itself, but it can also change the individuals involved. And you talk about this in your book as the awakening of the self. So as a starting point, I was wondering if each of you could give us an example from your own life or maybe from someone you interviewed for the book that illustrates what you mean by that term, awakening of self. It came from doing interviews and listening to clients. And initially, it uh, it was first really women describing this awakening of their sexuality you know, and that they sort of had been fallen under the spell of thinking that as women, they were less less sexual than men. 
And in the opening up process, realized they had a lot of sexuality, a lot of sexual energy, a lot of sex drive that like it literally never existed for them before and different experiences of styles that they wanted to have. So that was sort of the entry point. I was like, this is fascinating, right? And even within myself, I saw that, you know, that um, I never thought of myself maybe as a sexually repressed person, but in that opening up process, I felt like, whoa, there's such an expansion that's coming out of me that I had never experienced before. So awakening to that part of myself people describe other aspects too of sort of the awakenings that they have that can be very mundane all the way to full-on spiritual awakenings through this specific transition. Yeah, I think for me, a very specific example would be in the context of love languages. I think what's interesting is in the context of our marriage, I wasn't in touch with the fact that physical touch was so important, was actually my number one love language. And so it's interesting to think about this question of the waking of self as being connected to needs, needs and wants, ways of feeling loved, right, in intimacy. And so it's really the awakening of our conscious, individual consciousness to those particular needs and wants. And so it was mind-blowing, I mean, to the point of psychedelic, to recognize that on some level, yes, I was always feeling loved, especially intellectually and emotionally in the relationship with Jessica. And yet the touch piece wasn't there because I hadn't connected to it. And so it wasn't until that we were starting to connect physically with other people that I was like, wait a minute, here's been this thing that's so important to me that I haven't connected to. So how could I ask for it and, and claim it and try to integrate it into that relationship? But it's actually fundamental and number one. And for me, to, it's the fastest way for me to feel loved and connected to. So for me, it was just I couldn't believe it that this was something that I lived without for so long in a relationship that in so many ways felt so fulfilling. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You know, <laughs> I love how you both talk about relationships as psychedelics. It, it's not <laughs> something that uh, I had necessarily thought about before or, or referred to it with that term. But it makes sense because when we have relationship experiences, we're getting this neurochemical cocktail. And so it can affect us in ways that are akin to psychedelics. But Jessica, as you were telling your story of talking to women and learning about their experiences, it reminds me of some of the research I've seen on swinging in particular, where it's often the case that in a heterosexual couple that opens up and decides to engage in swinging, it's often the male partner who wants to pursue that more. And then when they start swinging, it's often the male partner who's the one who wants to close the relationship <laughs> <Right>. back up. <laughs> because these women's sexuality has been awakened and they have so many options and ways to you know explore and meet their sexual needs. Yes, exactly. So you have a chapter in your book that does a deep dive into this idea of the awakening of self. And you use this developmental psychology model developed by Robert Keegan as a way of exploring the different stages we go through in a relationship transition, or the stages we might go through. Not everyone goes through the same stages in the same way. Uh, so it starts with this kind of more individualistic internal focus and progresses to something that's more external and collective. So Jessica, can you kind of give us like the brief bird's eye overview of what this model looks like and how it can help us to understand where we are in our relationships at a given point in time? 
Yeah. So Keegan was looking at adult psychological development. And so biologically, all of us can reach adulthood, but that doesn't mean we are psychologically continuing to develop, right? Or we might continue to develop in these different stages. And he's one of many developmental psychologists that have come up with multiple stages. We chose his because it's sort of five more digestible stages. Some of the other ones I love are seven to 12 stages. It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to replicate that. Stages. Right. Too, it's a lot of stages or half stages they even have. Right? So um, his stages are the impulsive, which is sort of the mind of the child, right? That's just looking at, you know, yes, no, give me, don't give me, right? Reflexes and impulsivity. Next is the imperial mind, which is stage two, which is the mind of the adolescent. Then the socialized mind is stage three. This is where we are fitting in with the world and society and fitting in with family and culture and religion and what my boss says or what the doctor says, right? And there's a lot of emphasis, though, also on community care. After that, there's the self-authoring mind, which switches more into an internal compass of I'm not going to let the world or others define me, but I'm going to start self-authoring and defining myself, and that's a very empowering shift. And most people who are coming to seek out therapy are coming in the transition of from socialized self to self-authoring, right? Of like, wait a minute, who am I? Like, how do I make sense of this? How do I become someone different than what I've been told I'm supposed to be? And then the last stage is self-transforming where life is a transformative journey that can hold not just one way of being, but multiple complexities and paradoxes of being. Thanks for giving us that concise yeah, overview that I think, yes, yeah. <laughs> I think it really encapsulates the key ideas here. And I really love this model and think it can be useful for understanding development in our relationships. But these models also run the risk of being misinterpreted because we don't necessarily go through them in a linear way. We can slide back and forth between them. So it's just anytime you're talking about a developmental stage model, it's important to just kind of keep those caveats in mind. And you do a good job of highlighting those in the book. But I want to talk about some of the surprising shifts that can occur when people transition from monogamy to non-monogamy or they're exploring different kinds of non-monogamy and how this model can help us to understand those shifts better. And I think this is important to discuss because I've heard so many people talk about non-monogamy and polyamory as being this more evolved way of being that's full of enlightenment and self-discovery. But people follow different paths here. And sometimes people revert to earlier stages where they become more self-focused and it's about them and their needs and exploring their own freedom. And it can feel kind of selfish, but it can also be an important stage to go through because maybe you never really had a chance to focus on your own needs before. So, Tell us a bit about what it looks like when you have these transitions that occur where you, you kind of go back to that imperial mind that you described. For me, I, I see it in, in terms of our relationship to our own needs. Like, did we have the opportunity to have certain needs met? Like sort of sexual, For if we go back to that issue of sexual exploration, there's a lot of women who didn't have that in the context of a monogamous marriage, for instance was that opportunity present? And so then you start to open up a relationship and you start to get a taste of that freedom. The pull to that is going to be really strong, right? And so there can be this adolescent-like adamant 
advocation for your own needs to get met. And if we don't have that in context and say, oh, this is a need that can get met in a way that can be slowed down, it can definitely get met, we can negotiate that. When it first comes to the surface, it's been so repressed or not allowed for so long, it can really bust out at the seams. And so people can sort of lose kind of track of where the other partners are in relationship to that change as someone's trying to get those needs met. And so by having this staged out model, we can sort of create a scaffolding for understanding where are the places in our own experience where needs weren't getting met or we felt sort of subjected to structures that we had to sort of obey, right? And so at the imperial mind, it could have been in your family. You weren't allowed to have certain feelings there or the socialized mind, right? What's permissible in terms of the kinds of relationships you want to have? So it's really about understanding, okay, where were these needs in our own trajectory or evolution as individuals stunted, so to speak? And how can we put those into context and then negotiate from that place? Okay, as a partner, you're going to get those needs met, and it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but they definitely need to have some traction to feel like, okay, you're seeing that this is something important for me. I want to have this experience. Anything you would add to that, Jessica? Yeah, I think, you know, the reason we wanted to bring this in, well, because one of this repeated narrative I kept getting, you know, exposed to or or finding in my work with people was this, they were describing the transition of being in the socialized self to that self-authoring. And that's where you're going to hear in self-authoring, people use the words of liberation, freedom, expansion, And so it was just that I wanted to make sense of it and saw this framework really helped. But then I could see, oh, wait, right. When people are talking about non-monogamy is more evolved, they're talking about it from a self-transforming place. (laughs) However, someone in a self-transforming place actually wouldn't rate people as more and less evolved. I really want to make that clear. (laughs) So if (laughs) you're the one, you know, espousing that, right, be careful, (laughs) Someone in self-transforming mind just is living it that way and could be monogamous or non-monogamous. And it's their journey and path to awakening is through relationship, whether that's with one or multiple people. Or I think where non-monogamy gets this bad rap is you see these people who are just like, I got, can do whatever I want, whenever I want. And it's all about their freedom. And any kind of request for them to modify, slow down, have agreements is an assault on their freedom. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, this isn't even consensual non-monogamy half the time what someone's doing, right? And yet not to just demonize that person, to realize, oh, they have sort of shifted sometimes back or they are in a temporary phase of the imperial adolescent mind, right, that's trying to assert their own autonomy. And if you do it more consciously, it can work, right? But versus when it's done less consciously, it does become this sort of my needs versus your needs. And people can create a lot of harm when they're in that stage and don't realize what they're doing. Yeah. And I think everything you're describing here shows how this model can help us to better understand ourselves, but also our partners and where they might be in their own journey. And as you're talking about this, I was also kind of thinking about how these relationship transitions might also intersect with other things that are going on in our life at the same time. And they can have a combined effect on where you are in this model. So for example, somebody who is opening up, who is at midlife, 
maybe having their midlife crisis at the same time, you know, there might be more of a push back toward that imperial mind where it's making up for lost time and exploring different possibilities and freedoms and and all of that. So there can be a lot more that's going on sometimes than just the relationship transition itself. I'm a very biopsychosocial theorist, so it's all about everything that's happening inside and outside at the same time. Exactly. There's many things that impact what stage we're sort of experiencing and expressing life from. Yeah, and I think this is definitely where the, that concept of psychedelic really comes into play for me, because when you start talking about the last stage of self-transforming, there's just this point of view that's so expansive, right, that could be likened to a spiritual or psychedelic experience. And it can create these glimpses of possibilities that then people really want to explore but haven't integrated and so that can create a really interesting tension looking backwards, like, okay, are the infrastructures of your emotional relationships really ready to support and sustain something that expansive? But once you get a taste of it, it's going to be really alluring. Right. Just thinking of people who go to festivals, right? And they have maybe these really amazing, remarkable experiences at the festival, but it's hard to continue to live in that way in your everyday life. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who are festival goers, and um, festivals are not a one-time thing, (laughs) because everything that happens at the festival, you want to repeat that experience over and over again, so I get it. Now, the stage above the imperial mind is what you call the socialized mind, and you say this is where most adults are in any given time. Yes. And, you know, I kind of see that stage as basically kind of like the conformity stage. Whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous, it's about following the rules of what you think your relationship is supposed to be or what society has told you your relationship is supposed to be or your community. And it sounds good in theory in some ways, but it can also be really limiting. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of the, the challenges and limits of the socialized mind? Yeah, sure. I think the limits or challenges are really grounded in the fact that our identity at that level can really be anchored to the social group that we've been brought into just by circumstances, right? So the culture of society that we're embedded in, the identity in that place socially is where we sort of feel ourselves to be. Like that's the reality. And so if that reality then is monogamous, it's going to be really, really challenging to have any kind of relational experience outside of that or if kink's not permitted or BSM or whatever the experience that we're looking to have relationally. And so that's really the challenge is our experience is limited to what the social group says is permissible. And so the capacity to start to loosen that attachment to identity being fused with the social group is really when you start to see the move into self-authoring. Yeah, and I think then in the socialized self, many of our own desires and wants and needs can get exiled because they're not necessarily allowed based on sort of what Dave's saying of how what's appropriate, right, natural, these are all words in, in air quotes, right, and how all of that is being defined. Yeah. And that next stage that you refer to as the self-authoring mind is, you know, basically where you're starting to make this conscious choice about the life that you want to live. And that's really where this awakening that we've been talking about happens. But does everybody get to this stage at some point? And how long does that take? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the research shows, no, not everyone gets to this stage. 
I do think more and more though, we are seeing people get to this stage. So it's, you know, people are getting pushed into this stage or uh, gently <laughs> moved into this stage, I think earlier and earlier than before. But I think it's something like, oh, I'm forgetting the exact statistic, but I think over 70% of the population usually is socialized mind or below. And that the self-authoring and self-transforming or these other stages are less of the population. You know, as you were talking about that, I was kind of thinking about this in relation to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this also kind of sounds like the self-actualization. And it can happen when you've got all the needs below that on the pyramid that have finally been met. And I think you're right that more people are getting to this phase or this stage because in our modern world, we have more ability to meet those needs at the bottom and more opportunity to kind of focus on and pursue uh, that self-actualization. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of problems often arise in monogamous relationships is that they're looking for that relationship and that one person to be everything and be their all and provide that sense of self-actualization. And that's where it can become kind of tricky in navigating these relationships. Now, that final stage that you talk about, the self-transforming mind, seems to be the really elusive one, right? You say that only about 1% of the population lives there. So, you know, it sounds like, as you're describing it, kind of more of this spiritual awakening. But tell us a little bit more about this stage and why is it so elusive? I think because it's such a radical departure from what most of us are used to experientially. You're really living in a place where uncertainty and gray area is the norm, right? You don't have external belief systems and dogmas and structures of thought to lean into. You're sort of left with the relativity of all human thought. And that's kind of a scary place to hang out. And it requires a lot of responsibility, like to say that, okay, I'm choosing a belief out of many not because it's the big T truth, but because I've compared, and for me, this works, that's kind of a brazen place to be. And who's really willing to do that? You're kind of out on a limb existentially. So I think it's you have to go through so much deconstruction to get there, so much shedding of identities, beliefs, security systems, safety mechanisms. There's just so much in the way of that experience. And, and I get it. I understand why there's a really small percentage of the population that's going to touch that because it can be terrifying. It can be glorious, but it can also be scary as shit. <laughs> and I think it's also the case that our society is kind of set up in a way that kind of discourages you from going there because we don't want to hold space for ambiguity and gray zones. We want everything to be black and white. So I think that that often holds us back into some of these earlier stages of development. Absolutely. I mean, I think the pull to believe in experts is so powerful. It's so ubiquitous, you know, and I think that's the exciting place to get to is what happens when there are no experts except those who are expert in their own experience and we're navigating those sort of separate realities together right and comparing notes that's the place i really love hanging out is someone who's really anchored in self-authoring mind has touched into this you know the real transformative self-actualization level the self-transforming level and like yeah what is what's true there for now not even what's true forever, but just like what's true right now and knowing that that can change. That's a really cool place to be. And there can be moments of uh, vertigo, like, okay, what's, how do I stay grounded in this? 
Anything you would add to that, Jessica? I like that vertigo, <laughs> developmental vertigo. <laughs> I've suffered from it a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as you were talking about this, it kind of leads nicely into my next question, which was about how, you know, this process of self-awakening can be exciting, can be really exhilarating, but it can also be really frightening and really destabilizing. You know, when you're talking about that self-transforming mind, I can see why that would be maybe an uncomfortable place for some people to even contemplate going because it's just such a radical departure from where they are right now. So, you know, as we're moving through these stages, we're essentially, as you describe in the book, deconstructing the self. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the positive and the painful side of kind of moving through these stages and finding ourselves. And, you know, you you mentioned that people going between stages three and four, like that's when they start to seek out therapy. So I guess that's where it starts to become much more challenging. I think so. And more from um, other developmental theories, you know, it's not that one stage, the next stage is like better or more superior than the other. It's that at each stage, there's more complexity and capacity. However, and it includes the previous stage, it doesn't shed it and exile it. It actually incorporates it and has integrated it. So you can you there's value in each of the stages before But as we increase in complexity, there's more wonderful things we can experience. And there's also more room for (laughs) disease and challenge and dysfunction that also arises. So, you know, around this deconstruction of the self, that transition, people can start looking and assessing like, oh, how have I been defining myself? And are these the ways I want to continue defining myself? So, right, that can be really empowering very invigorating to do, right? To start saying these are now the ways I want to define myself or the values I want to align myself with. But the challenge can be, I don't know, you can get sort of lost in this relativism, right? Like, well, what is right and wrong then, right? What is up and down? Like, what are the, oh, I hear, you know, this expert says it's this way and this these three experts say it's that way, right? It's really hard to know. And so, you know, what I initially started seeing was women describes this transition as liberating and men typically described it as this painful deconstruction of themselves, right? <laughs> because often, Dave will tell this story in a second, um, but, you know, often things around privilege have never been examined before, right, for certain men. And now it's getting really tested and challenges as they sort of step into a marginalized community and, you know, non-monogamous communities are pretty savvy when it comes to a lot of these issues around power, privilege, consent. And so you're going to get tested. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the first place I saw it in my practice, but it was really in the process of Dave and I opening up from a monogamous marriage to a polyamorous one. And he was having a complete mental crisis breakdown, like complete. And it was terrifying. And we needed to figure out what the hell is going on and how do we make sense of it. And so this was one of the ways, I think, that we've come to make sense of what was happening. Yeah, and I think this is one of the most important things for me in terms of the value of attachment theory. It's like this for me is the kind of the axis around which all of this spins, right? So at any point along this developmental model, I see the concept of attachment being sort of a linchpin or a grounding post in our journey, right? Even in that sort of big freedom that's in the seventh stage, attachment still matters, right? Someone in that stage who's really 
sort of embodying the principles are still going to be able to care for someone else's attachment needs in their own. It's not a total disregard of everything, right? There's still a capacity along that trajectory to recognize, okay, if, if I'm anchored in attachment-based security, then there are going to be things that I have to pay attention to and tend to and care for and be aware of. It's not just total freedom at the cost of everything. And I think that's something that people get confused about. It's kind of a spiritual bypassing, right? I don't have to be relational anymore once I touch the highest heights of spiritual attainment. I think it's similar in the context of the relational world, right? You're so free mentally that you've transcended all need to be a good partner. And that's, that causes a lot of harm, I think, in, in the real world. Thank you for sharing all of that. And, you know, just one thing to add to it is when we're talking about these stages, you and your partner or partners might all be in different places and each pairing of the stages might create unique challenges in terms of how to navigate that. It might also be personally challenging as you progress through different stages. And so that's where it's important to recognize you don't have to do this on your own and you can talk to a therapist who can help you kind of work through this because that's really what you're there for is to, to help people with that process of self-awakening. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jessica and David. It was a pleasure to have you here. Jessica, can you tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yes, they can find me at jessicafern.com. And David, where can people go to learn more about you? Yeah, they can find me at restorativerelationship.com. And the new book is called Polywise. And when does it come out? August 25th. So it's coming out soon and it's available anywhere books are sold. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Jessica and David's book, Polly Wise. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.